Well, welcome to the Apologetics.com radio show. My name is Harry Edwards, and uh, we are here tonight, uh, and we are challenging believers to think and thinkers to believe. Um, I am joined in the studio by my good friends, Lenny Esposito. Good morning. Nice to meet you. See you again. Yes. We say good evening. Good good evening. Good evening. Yeah. Well, depends on, I guess, uh, yeah, we have maybe one more minute. Or... Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, we try to be consistent and just yeah. say good evening. Yeah, it's better that way. Morning is a weird to say morning. It's kind of weird right now when it's dark outside, right? And Jacob, Dr. Jacob Daniel, how you doing? Oh, very well. Yeah, good to be here. Good evening, all our listeners. All right. So I haven't asked you guys uh, any ministry updates. It might be good to let our listeners know um, how they can connect with your various ministries. Any, anything going on uh, with you? Lenny? Well, I just came back from a trip to Omaha where I spoke uh, at a church. They were having a kind of a faith and science gathering symposium. I spoke five times in three nights, so three days. Uh, which went over really well. It was a, a warm church, very well received. Glad to to be there. Wonderful people. And then uh, uh, took the weekend to uh, take a long bike ride in order to help raise funds for Come Reason Ministries. So there you go. Uh, that was that was what I've been doing this past week. And now just uh, back to the to the nine to fives, trying to write and produce more. Uh, apologetics content. Oh, so good, good. Mm-hmm. And uh, let our listeners know where they can find your your ministry. Yeah, on you the go web. to comereason.org, and of course, you can watch YouTube videos, uh, podcasts, blogs. I got over a thousand articles on the site. Lots of questions and and Bible difficulties answered. All things like that. So good. How about you, Jacob? Yeah, I got back from our missions conference, our annual missions conference, which was in Turlock. Uh, great time, spending time Turlock. with Clo- Turlock, <laughs> <laughs> close to Fresno. Um, yeah, uh, connected with you know just um, our missionaries, close to 40 of them, and just had a wonderful time uh, with them. It, it, it's an avenue to really l- learn what God is doing in North America, including Mexico and Canada, and just... Uh, Amazing work, and I'm looking forward to quite a few conferences coming up, uh, one in Florida. There are churches uh, getting together to do a youth conference, getting ready for that. So I'm preparing for about 10 talks that I lined up. And, wow. Not yeah. TED Talks. Not ten, TED Talks. 10, ten, ten talk, Talks. Yeah. And So <laughs> to say that, uh, uh, grateful for all the opportunities that God is providing, and if anyone is interested to learn more about it, they can go to the website heritagecouncil.org or to our missions uh, uh, website uh, mgf.org. Wow, that's great. I feel bad now because all I did last week was backpack. <laughs> I led a, a team, uh, basically my good friends and my two sons on a backpacking trip, and it was good. It's something that we had planned and actually secured the date even last year. Mm. So it it just had to happen. And uh, in some ways, it's actually connected to what we're going to be talking about uh, this evening. So I don't know if I'll get to share with that, uh, share that, but... Anyways, we are, uh, if you're, you've been following us, um, our particular team, we've been discussing Carl Truman's book, The uh, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Um, it's a good book. I highly recommend it. I wish maybe you guys can hold up the, the book right there. Um, in fact... Lots of really good kudos uh, from from that book. Rod Dreher, who is who has written a number of good books himself, when it comes to cultural apologetics, uh, he said this is without question one of the most important religious books of the decade. That is high praise coming from Rod Dreher. Uh, I think it it's big of him. Takes humility. For, for an author to, to say anything like that when he's writing in the same, you know, mm-hmm. area. Uh, and for those of you who follow Ben Shapiro, he said, this is the most important book of our moment. And I think I know why. It's it's obvious. We, the three of us, we think it's a, an important volume, and we appreciate Truman's work on this. 
uh, let me tell you a little story uh, to just highlight why this is important. So I was having a conversation with uh, my pastor this morning. Uh, he said he was going to attend a, like a parent-teacher conference just to, you know, see what the school's about and to look at curriculum and whatever. And he was saying uh, his kid is third grade, and already in the third grade they're promoting um, all, all manner of deviant, sexual, whatever, just yeah. LGBT type stuff, just promoting it as a normal you know, lifestyle, something that kids choose. We all know that when you mess with um, people's sexual identity, which is a big part of who we are as human beings, then a lot of things follow from that. A lot of bad things follow from that. And I believe we are seeing our culture today slowly, you know, we're circling the drain. I mean, it, things are are not good today. Um, and I believe one of the reasons is because there's a breakdown in our identity, our sexual identity. It's apparently something we can choose now, and um, it's not something we're born with, apparently. And when that happens, then you begin to affect marriage as well, and then you begin to affect relationships. You re start redefining love and just all of those things. And I don't know if uh, thoughtful Christians have considered that. Maybe we've bought into the whole idea that uh, it's okay to be tolerant or loving and to let some of these ideas go when when uh, we're feeling the uh, the bad effects of that right now, I, and, and we haven't seen the end of it. I was going to mention, uh, again, the verse in First Chronicles um, 12, that uh, we ought to be like the men of Issachar. It's men who understood the times and to know what Israel ought to do. And I remember sharing this the last time. This group of men, they were part of David's mighty men. They actually went to battle with David, um, maybe they were, uh, maybe uh, maybe that's where he got his advice. But uh, that was important, and uh, they really did physical battle. I think today we're doing uh, not so much physical battle, but we're doing battle in our hearts and in our minds. So again, what we are doing right now, then we are covering chapter four. Uh, it's titled "Unacknowledge Legislators." Where? You guys have read the chapters, gentlemen. Where where did that come from? And and what do you think uh, the author meant by the unacknowledged legislators? And I just want to remind our listeners, the last time we did it, we talked about the uh, the other Genevan, right? Yeah, yeah Rousseau. So, that's right, Rousseau. This is just FYI, somewhat of a continuation, hence the title. You know, it, now we're talking about the unacknowledged legislators and. I have to say, you know, I, I was very—I'm um, thankful for Truman for pointing this out. I wasn't very sure I was mentioning to you guys the connection or what romanticism had anything to do with whatever, right? But yeah. uh, apparently, um, it, it, it's a rejection of everything that was bad in the Industrial Revolution. But anyways, what? who are the unacknowledged legislators, and what did they do? Well— so they're using the word legislator in a specific sense. When we hear the word legislator, we think of a congressman, someone who's passing laws. They're thinking of legislation, laws, as in the laws of society, how moral laws, basically moral dictums, how we should live our lives, how we, there are a lot of presumptions that aren't necessarily violating any legal standard, but they violate the moral precepts of society. And those are the laws that these legislators are either rewriting or or undermining or things of that nature. The, the, the phrase comes from uh, one of the romantic poets of the late 18th, early 19th century, which was a Percy Shelley. Mm -hmm. And Percy Shelley used that phrase to, in a self-appreciative way, basically, to bolster the poets. And you have to put yourself back into the understanding of, of what the poets were, because, again, we grow up in a very illiterate age mm -hmm. uh, today. In 
1800, music did not play nearly as big a, a, a part in society as it does now. First of all, of course, there's no radio, there's no phonograph, there's none of that. And you may have had some people who play an instrument, but the only music you hear is only as good as the aunt or the uncle who could play it, and only as diverse as the sheet music they possibly could get a hold of, or the folk songs that everybody would know, Camp Town Races, Yankee Doodle, right? So it's a very limited, very mm -hmm. very narrow, and wasn't wasn't widespread. Similarly, for entertainment, you had a very... Most of your time was spent working. Most of your time was dealing with these things. So the the only kind of um, social convention and the social uh, interaction you would have would be through reading of popular periodicals, magazine, newsprint, uh, and sometimes books if you can afford them. And, or if you could read them. And, well, but <laughs> but it was actually a more literate. If you were to ever read, it's interesting if you take a letter from, say, uh, a Civil War uh, private who was drafted off of the form. I mean, this is a, usually a lower-class society who's writing back to his wife. His wording and his diction is so much more advanced mm. than what people today could write. It, it's yeah. very interesting. If you watch the History Channel, when they start reading off the letters that people would exchange, because... The written word was That's the true. only form of communication. Uh, it was much more natural and 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 more um, metaphors and things like that were more well understood. So poetry wasn't as foreign to them as it was to us. More people understood it. It was the the social powerhouse of the day. And what Shelley is trying to say is, it's the poets, right? Yeah, I think it was. Uh, wasn't it a, a quote from Plato? Is is you know. Uh, give me a man who writes uh, uh, country songs, and it doesn't matter what their who politicians mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. who passes their laws. Yeah, yeah. And 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 that's basically what he's saying is we can capture the souls of individuals and sway their I understanding and their ideology through our poetry because that's the popular medium of the culture. Poets were prophetic in that they had the power and capacity to influence imaginations. Right, right. And I think that was a kind of impact, and I, that's very much evident in all generations, even ours too. Yeah. Right, the right. question is, who are the poets of today? Right, right, right. right. So think of the Beatles is a, is a, is maybe a modern example of of uh, a very intimate group of guys who not only reflected their time but actually moved it forward. Right? You can't think of the '60s and the counterculture movement happening without the Beatles. It just doesn't happen. Even the fact that the Rolling Stones would be a response to the Beatles because those guys are playing it too safe, you know. But but the Beatles were so impactful and 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 shaped the culture so much that people are right still talking about them today. Three, two, one. McCartney comes out and all these documentaries now. Uh, it, it still resonates, and that's what the poets were in that time. And just like us Christians, we would go back to the early creeds written by early church, right? Um, uh, I think we can look at these poems or, or, mm. or the writings of the times and understand what were the creedal you know, uh, positions of people at that yeah. point of time. I want to just remind our listeners, um, again, I think it'd be valuable if you picked up the book. The uh, I mentioned the title already, but the subtext is important. It reads, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the road to sexual revolution. So Truman here in this book is no doubt trying to help us understand how we've come this far in our um, in our behavior and our thinking to be able to accept uh, any sort of sexual preference as normative, right? You could identify as a male if you're a woman. You can identify as a woman if you're a male. It doesn't matter. Uh, and we see that today, and it seems like it's uh, it's acceptable now. Uh, and I know uh, they're creating laws that you can't discriminate against these kinds of preferences. In chapter four, I wanted to read uh, just something that he said here, which is a good reminder about the book. So we're we're focused here, right? So we're 
we're just trying to make sure the thesis, his thesis is, is, um, is always at the forefront of our minds when we're reading his book. He says, the question with which I started, however, remains, how did such ideas, ideas originally floated in elite intellectual circles, become not simply the common currency of our society, but so deeply embedded in such that most people never reflect on them in any critical or self-conscious way and are apparently convinced that they are simply a natural part of our existence. So I mentioned again uh, a while ago my pastor's daughter, third grade. It is just so important as parents that we are mindful of what our kids are learning because can you imagine a third grade by the fifth Maybe after a year, that becomes normative, right? I mean, can you imagine what that kind of thing will do to a, a society? Um, so definitely there is an agenda there. There is a, a definite agenda, and we have to be— I am, I am just really—to uh, me, I think this is a critical point in church history in the West, that we need to be dealing with this because the ramifications are just going to be horrendous uh, for the next generation. Yeah, I think there had been a radical shift, right? If you look back, um, sex was understood as an activity that would have a purpose, a telos to it. Uh, Whereas what we have come to now is that to see sex as forming our identity. And that comes down to then individual preference and feelings uh, and longings when it comes to defining one's own self. Right. So it's not determined by anything that is imposed on us or or from outside in any sense that would that would have some kind of restraint or boundary around it, yeah. whereas we ourselves set those boundaries. Yeah. So um, tonight we want to talk about some of these poets and in their own thinking, poets with a capital P. All right, yeah. because they're a big deal uh, in in their minds, right? And um, just to give you an idea of. Uh, the time period we're discussing here, this is the early 19th century, all right? Uh, we're coming out, if we can do a quick genealogy of uh, ideas here, uh, a lot of the ideas began in the Enlightenment, and then from there spawned the Industrial Revolution, and then the uh, after that, the Romantics came after that. So that's where we are right now in the around 1800s. And um, these guys, Shelley, uh, De Quincey, and Blake, and Wordsworth, they're all writing around that same time um, in the UK. And uh, we all, uh, according to Truman, which I, I think this is not a stretch, a lot of their writing is a pushback against the Industrial Revolution. Why? Why do you think that's the case. Well, there there was there was something to be lamented. There was a loss. Uh, the Luddites show up right at the same time. Ned Ludd. They were more economically driven because they were worried about the new machinery putting the the worker out of work. That was that was their primary concern. Well, if it, a machine can yeah. pick the cotton in, or, or pick the seeds out of the cotton, right, cotton yeah. gin, yeah, yeah. instead of an, a human being, then what's the human being going to do? Uh, this is very contemporary with what we see computers today, right, right automating right. tasks and things like that. So, so nothing's new under the sun. But the other piece was – it was really the first time in history where you had a mass migration to civic centers. In other words, you had more and more people. For, the, for most of human existence, the primary occupation was agriculture. People had to grow food. And you could only grow so much. Technology only allowed you to grow so much. With the advent of the Industrial Revolution beginning and new farming techniques, things began to prosper much more quickly. So people moved into the cities to find work. Now you've lost that kind of country 
idealism. Um, people are packed together. Cities can be dirty. In the 1800s, there's not a lot of... Life was easier, simpler. Well, uh, life was actually... Uh, you caught a lot more diseases yeah. and, and... Well, I mean in the rural. Uh, uh, yeah, well, yeah, that, yeah. Was, that was the romantic view. And it, that's, right, right. that's why they're called the romantics, because they really had a romanticized view of living with nature. Right, right. No, you had to fight off bears, you had droughts, you had starvation. I mean, life on the farm was hard. It's hard work. Ask any of the pioneers, you know, who settled the Midwest. Yeah. It wasn't as easy, but but these guys looked back on it idyllically. And isn't it funny, we always tend to do this, where we start looking idyllically at what we think, you know, oh, if I could just get away and get to the country, and then you find out, crud, I got to work get up at five o'clock in the morning every morning and you know, those chickens need to eat. No, you actually do have to clean out the cow pen and all that stuff. So, uh, but for them it was even worse because there was always the threat of disease and sickness and drought and things like that. So, but they idealized this and what they thought was that's the more natural state of society. People were better off because they could appreciate the simple beauty of the world of nature, the way it's presented as opposed to the constructed formation of cities. And then they expanded that and applied it to the formation of how we have to act in society and how we have to curtsy and bow and how we have to, you know, so they, they, they said all of these rules, right? If I'm alone in the country, I can do what I want. I don't have to follow all those rules. I can dress how I want. I can Whatever I want to do, I can do. But in the city, you got to follow all these rigid rules and timetables and things like that. And that's that's what they were pushing back on. They thought that those were artifices that were getting in the way of the true happiness of humanity. Uh, I, I wanted to say too, during the uh, romantics, uh, romantic period, when we talk about the poets, I think I mentioned a while ago, they considered themselves, I made a note here, it, it seems like they were equating themselves with God. Mm. Uh, number one, their poet was capitalized, you know. But um, let me give you an idea here. I'm quoting uh, Wordsworth here and how he defines, I guess, his his role, right, as a poet. The poet is the rock of defense of human nature, an upholder and preserver, carrying everywhere with him relationship and love. In spite of difference of soil and climate, of language and manners, of laws and customs, in spite of things silently gone, out of mind, and things violently destroyed, the poets bind together by passion and knowledge the vast empire of human society as it is spread over the whole earth and over all time. That's how, I guess, they considered their role was to sort of save humanity from, um, again, from from measurements, from accuracy, from, from being, things. From being reasonable but not feeling. Also from being robotic as, um, yeah. I, I, I guess, the Industrial Revolution has, I, I guess, trained human beings at the time to be. But... The other thing, too, and we can definitely, um, maybe in the second hour, because we're almost out of time, but um, we can connect uh, their main project with how it, it sort of manifests in, in today's culture. Like, for instance, just the whole, um, they, they have, the poets have to transcend boundaries, meaning words. Uh, and uh, because all of those things are just reminding them of the industrial revolution, it dehumanizes them apparently. Okay. So th there were some really good goals, right? Who, I mean, who who doesn't want to be uh, dehumanized, or who, who, who wants to be dehumanized? Nobody, right? So um, uh, I think with industrialization, what we are seeing is a kind of like distance from nature, whereas here the attempt is going back to the nature, seeing human beings as uh, not just being part, but basically a product of nature itself. So uh, any kind of this kind of advancement in technology or industrialization would be considered as seeing threatening yeah. to the very nature of who we are as human beings yeah. and what we are supposed to be in, in our raw form. Right, right, right. Yeah, so... so 
take your hike, for example, you know, anyone who visits, we have people visiting the Grand Canyon, right? All of the time. And they all stop and they look at it and there is a a sublimeness to that or, or a beautiful sunset. You stop and you look at, and when you go on a hike like that and you just see that crazy, there's something that you feel that's so deep and, and it puts you almost back in touch with God in touch with his creation that you can't ever experience in the city. And I think that's what the poets were saying. They were saying, they were saying that what we want to do is that's the state that it is. It, it's so much better to feel that way. And we, and that's why everything else is artificial. We're trying to make you feel that way uh, all the time. Right. No, that's good. In fact, let us hold on to that thought and we will continue that discussion. Uh, right now, you are listening to apologetics.com radio. We're specifically talking about chapter four of Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. So we'll be right back after a few messages. All right, let's get back to the apologetics.com radio show. Well, welcome to the second half hour of the Apologetics.com radio show. I'm Harry Edwards. This is a show where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. I'm here uh, live with my good friends, Dr. Jacob Daniel. Hi. Hi again, and uh, Lenny Esposito. All right. So, um, if you have been following us, we have been discussing Chapter 4 of Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Again, we highly recommend it. So we are getting right now into the Romantic era, uh, 1800s, uh, early 1800s. And it's the poets that are kind of ruling the world right now. Mm. They're the ones dictating. uh, They're like... Yeah, the if they were, yeah, they're the influencers. Yeah, if they yeah. lived today, they'd be the influencers, the TikTok people, the Instagram people. Uh, and and I, I need to remind our audience, when we're talking about the poets and their poems and their writings, they mean it more than just entertainment. Yeah. This is a uh, uh, something deep philosophically that they are, again, pushing back against the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. And I think we mentioned during the break, it's because they have seen the mechanics, the uh, you know, the push for productivity and uh, and Basically, accuracy and all of that. Me- catechizing the culture. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Well, and I think in a footnote, um, Truman points to uh, the recent example of Will and Grace. That that wasn't high art. You know, he writes that wasn't high art, but that more than anything else helped pave the road for normalizing uh, same-sex relationships in the minds of most people of modern America. And and most television production companies feel this way. They, they won't show cigarettes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you show cigarettes, you know, you're damaging society. They will show homosexual relationships. And, and so they see themselves as doing something more than simply providing entertainment. They're teaching at the same time. Right, that's true. And those were the poets of, you know, that's what they did back then. Um, they definitely had a message through their poems. Yeah. I, I want to read something here from uh, the chapter here. Like you were just saying, uh, Lenny, um, The poet does not simply describe the world in a metrical form of language with a view to steering up the same emotional response in the audience that he himself has experienced. He does something much more significant. He enables the audience to see beyond the ephemeral particulars of life to a much deeper reality, a deeper unity. Um, So, yeah, it's... We've come now to uh, because the whole and we did a show on on disenchantment, right? And the industrial revolution was definitely disenchanted. Everything was machines, and uh, j- just it was dehumanizing for sure. So there was uh, a longing to go back to the transcendent, uh, a longing to be 
uh, enchanted again, to, 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 to make the world enchanted again. So through their poems, they really thought, uh, the poets thought that they could transcend all of this and maybe go to a higher, um, I don't know, understanding of themselves, back to true humanity. But what, what, what was the error in their thinking, the, what was what was lacking in that in that attempt? Well, they misunderstood the nature of man itself. Um, they, you know, one of the problems with the Romantics is they wanted to throw off all boundaries, and that included sexual boundaries, mm-hmm. that included religious boundaries, that included morals of uh, the day. And and while some of those may have been restrictive or overly restrictive, I mean, yes, it was true in the medieval period, if you were caught in the act of adultery, you could be stoned, you know, or, or put to death in some way. Um, witch burnings and things like that were there were there were issues with those, but that doesn't mean that you say Ali Ali Oxenfree, none of it applies anymore. Or the fact that really our nature and our true self is what we find when we relieve ourselves of all of our constraints and all of these different layers. Uh, Tony Campalo once gave a, a talk where he was talking about counseling a young married, soon to be married couple. And the guy was kind of echoing this idea, you know, I just got to get away from society. I got to get away from all of these layers that people put upon me. Right. And Tony Campalo says, well, what if you find out you're an onion? <laughs> I said, what do you mean? <clears throat> he says, what if you peel back all of the layers and at the end of all of the layers being peeled back, you find out, hey, there's nothing left. There's nobody home. <laughs> right. What if you are the sum total of all of your layers? It's interesting that when they talk about getting back to nature, they don't talk about the nature of the family. So later in this chapter, we talk about how uh, they wanted to eliminate all kind of sexual uh, restrictions, even the monogamous marriage relationship. Mm-hmm. Well, how are kids going to be raised? Well, they, you know, the society can bring them up and things like that. Well, no, that's not natural. Right, right. But they are ignoring that nature. They wouldn't know who the father was, right? Yeah. yeah. And don't children deserve to be reared by their biological parents? That's right. a question we should ask today. And I think also uh, there's a mistake to, at that time, what they had seen was the whole negative side of the industrialization, yes. right? Yeah. It, it, it didn't have the time to actually work and progress and humanize us as yeah. well. Sure, sure. So technology has not only been dehumanizing human beings, but if properly used, it right. humanizes us. Um, the only mistake is if we let any kind of technological advancement master us instead right. of mastering it. And, and that's good to uh, keep reminding ourselves. Yeah. We're not anti-technology, but we need to be careful because it's so easy to be owned by our possessions, right? Yeah. That's the thing. Uh, and in fact, there's a, it, it's good that we're talking about this because there's a direct comparison between the Romantic age, the way I see it, and our age right now. So they're pushing against the Industrial Revolution, and in some ways, we're, at least at least the three of us, we're pushing against the uh, um, disastrous effects of technology, like uh, social media or just... You were mentioning, Lenny, right, how um, one morning you were out on a bike ride and you realized you came across a bunch of Yeah, everybody was walking people. to school. And, and nobody was... In my day, I remember walking to school during high school and you'd find friends and you'd talk and you'd get, you know, have engaged conversations. Everybody was looking down. They were just, they were looking at the phone in their hand. Their hair was drooped down over their eyes. Um, they were, cro- luckily they crossed the street without <laughs> falling or running into a car. Because they have a crossing guard. To- <laughs> well, it, I, and it was, I mean, you're talking about dozens of kids and I'm not hearing conversations. I'm not seeing, you know, right. them pushing one another or, or talk. I, they're just, they're zombies. Yeah, yeah. And it's sad. It's, it's, it is dehumanizing in that regard. Yeah. So. What are some of the ways that, uh, I think we talked about this uh, a little bit, what are some of the ways we're pushing back against that? Uh, or do we see that that's happening in, in uh, Gen Z, let's say, or is it more like our, our it's happening. It's happening in the church, right? Okay. Uh, how, many, how many churches do you pass by 
that say, join us either in person <laughs> or online. Yeah, yeah. Does yeah. that fit the Hebrews <laughs> command that you shall not forsake the gathering of yourselves together? Does it? Right, right. <laughs> exactly. What does communion truly mean? Exactly. That's right, yeah. I remember giving a sermon not too long ago. I said, um, online church, if there is such a thing, that's that could be maybe good for outreach, but that's not church. I said, that's and that's never going to be church. Because we're... we're uh, embodied, where yeah. um, God created us with a body, so we're not just uh, like uh, souls in a matrix, right? Yeah. Just plug us into some program and there we live. No, we uh, we're flesh and blood, and we interact. I think it, we have to go back to the Garden of Eden. I think one of the sins that we committed was of uh, being consumerist, right? Uh, and that's what we are doing, even with church. Uh, our worship is more about consumption. Mm-hmm. It's not about worship. Yeah. Right? It's not about coming together sacrificially, assuming sacrificial responsibility. That's not worship anymore for us. It's yeah. uh, it's consumption. And that's the case with even with our young people. And we've been promoting that. Even with yeah. schools, if you see, we've been giving them lessons online over this COVID time and preparing them for the meta world, mm-hmm. right? In one yeah. sense. Uh, so I think that disconnect is doing the harm. And the church has a major responsibility, especially those who are working with young people, for them to really... Um, recapture their imagination and uh, uh, align it with that which is really true, good, and beautiful. So let, let's take an example. Everybody knows about the idea of being Pinterest perfect, right? How how you can frame the Bible, morning Bible devotion with the coffee cup and the book and the notepad, take the picture, and it all looks great. You have no idea that the bed's not made and the kid's crying in the corner. Mm-hmm. You can't see any of that. When you go to church online— it's kind of the same thing. You're limited to the f- shot in the frame, but you're you're separated from it. When you go to the church and you're walking from the parking lot to the sanctuary and you look over and you see Fred, you may come up to him and say, hey, Fred, how you doing? Now, he may say, fine. Okay, If you're chatting with Fred on the message board, he says, fine, you say, fine. But no, Fred, you don't look fine. There's something wrong. Can I talk with you? Can I pray with you? There's something that you can do with him in person that there's no way you can do that in any virtual manner. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason we gather together as a body is because God has given each one of us gifts, and our gifts are there to bolster one another. How can we exercise those if we're siloed? Yes. No, that's true. So I don't know where we got this idea that online church is okay. In fact, I won't mention uh, a very popular preacher that is on KKLA every day, but... He actually calls this program online church and is encouraging people to log in. And I mean, like I said, you know, I'm thankful for technology. Mm. It's a good tool. Even right now, what we are doing is through technology. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's it's right. an extension of the church, yeah. not the church. But not the church. Yeah. That's an important distinction. The other thing that we can uh, talk about when it comes to the romantics, and let's just get right to it. Um, they have this... Uh, Maybe it's a philosophy of aesthetics or a philosophy of beauty, but poet's way of thinking, it ended up having aesthetics as the primary arbiter of Mm. truth Mm -hmm. and falsity and and jettisoned rational argumentation. In fact, one of uh, Wordsworth's uh, quotes was, as soon as something became didactic, as he said, that's not great poetry anymore. <laughs> so uh, if it made logical sense, you jettison that, according to Wordsworth, right? So h- how does that kind of thinking manifest in our society today? Well, I would say, again, we, we are, this is, this is the, the seed of the feeling-based culture. This is where it, it starts to begin, the idea— and again, when you see something that's truly beautiful, when you read something that truly touches you, you know, that's a feeling that you can't get any other way. Music does this to us often. There's there's something about that song. Now, if you really take it apart, many times the song that you're reading is tied to a memory, first dance from your wedding, things of that nature. But But music can move us and pick us up and 
and make us feel things that you just can't do through rational thought. But that, just because you feel something, doesn't mean that that's the ultimate truth. Uh, The medievalists, as I said, would never have been so naive nor so uh, myopic to think that a phrase like follow your heart Hmm. is something that to be obeyed because they would recognize that the heart is deceitfully wicked. And they would also have the experience knowing that the guy who follows his heart, like the prodigal son in Jesus' parable, often ends up in the pigsty. You know, there's a long view. And the medievalists, they were the religious man of the day, they would understand that what our goal is, is not happiness in this life at all. It's uh, living an appropriate, soul-shaping, moral life so that in the next life we can have true happiness, which is enjoyment of God, knowing Him and enjoying Him forever. This is where the romantics get it completely wrong. They don't understand the sin nature of man, right. that, that he'll, they'll run that way, and, and they, they, they begin the belief that if you feel it, that has to be true because nobody can fake your feelings. And within the church context, we see this. Uh, Harry, I think you wanted to touch on this, like the whole hermeneutics, the whole idea of interpreting the scripture based on the context, to whom Mm. it was spoken, um, uh, what was the context and everything. We completely disregard that today and just look at what it would speak to me at this moment where I am. And how it makes you feel. And how it makes you exactly. And and the interpretation doesn't come through the scripture. It comes through from within. Right. That it's my feelings. that This is what the passage says to me. This is what exactly. (laughs) And I think it's connected with a lot in in some sense to this very idea of what we've been telling our kids as well you could be whatever you want to be yeah that's you right. know uh, in, in, so in one sense we are connected that to our own self when it comes to the scripture and say that i could be whatever i want to be through the scripture and validate that through the scripture yeah. and we find justification in that and that does so much of damage in that that we remove the constraints or or the or the, or, or the boundary that the scripture sets mm. Now, whereas what we do is when we are interpreting the scripture through our own preferences and our own feelings, we are the ones setting the boundary. And we keep on breaking those boundaries, enlarging those boundaries, rebuilding those boundaries based on our longings and our own preferences. Sure. I think that's one of the most damaging things churches do today. I mean, I was just recently talking to um, a church member, and uh, he said that their Bible studies used to be uh, they'd read maybe uh, a few verses, maybe uh, at most a dozen, and then they'd go around the table and go, all right, Bob, what do you think that passage meant? Or worse yet, uh, Sally, what did that passage mean to you? Yeah. Uh, and how about to you, Fred? You know, And they just go around the table, and it could be wildly different from one person to the next, but it's it's how it spoke to them. So yeah, in some sense, they are the poets, right? They are the poets because it can't make it can't be didactic. It can't I mean, be too logical. It, it's visible in our songs too, right? Jesus mm-hmm. loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Mm-hmm. So Jesus loves me. So Jesus is kind of obliged to love me the way I am, in one sense. And anything goes in my own life. Mm-hmm. And but I have this. Uh, idea that Jesus loves me because the scripture tells me so. Uh, so the focus or, is me. Yeah, or, or the worst is when they take the, the verse out of context. Yeah, I can do all things through Christ, Christ who strengthens, strengthens me. me. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's, oh, that doesn't mean what you think. That's, yeah. that's not the superhero verse. That's, okay. yeah. that, that means that I can bear whatever burden I'm facing if I understand that Christ is with me, and yeah, it's it's. But you're exactly right. That's exactly what what how we spin it, so yeah. to speak. We mentioned some of the current cultural things that happen today, like the Burning Man, right? Mm. So that seems to be a uh, desire to go back to sort of nature, uh, the way Rousseau would uh, have us think, because going back to our nature uh, is going to uh, going back to our innocent selves mm. and uh and that's always been the goal for Rousseau and so 
I haven't been to the Burning Man. Uh, I've read about it. I've seen pictures, but it's out in the desert, right? Yeah. Uh, and I I don't know if there's any electricity or maybe that's yeah. I don't think so. Nothing. Right. It's, so it's it's you whatever you bring, <laughs> whatever you bring. However, there's a class system there too. So there are yes. sections divided. You can glamp or you can camp. You really? know, you can choose to do either. <laughs> <laughs> but it's out in the sticks, out in the dirt, and somehow they feel uh this religious fervor and excitement when they're there and whatever they're celebrating this big burning it's man it's a I celebration suppose. of hedonism is yeah, all that's is right what, <laughs> what it is it's it's literally that yeah. so that, that's that's almost uh, so again, so here's yeah. an interesting modern parallel yeah most people um with a progressive mindset will point to woodstock as the yeah. as kind of the the ultimate example three days of Love, free love, yeah. music, that kind of thing. And they tried to recreate that. They tried to do Woodstock again in 1999. There's an actual a documentary out on Netflix right now about Woodstock 99. Oh. It was a complete disaster. <laughs> it was an unmitigated, just horror show. And it kind of goes to show that, that you know, just because something made you feel good at one point in time, uh, and again, we we tend to look back at things with our rose-colored glasses and and forget all of the bad parts of it. It it won't it can't sustain us. Even if you have that wonderful experience that one time, that's not a sustaining experience. It's not something you can live in. Mm-hmm. You can't live in a society where children don't have parents. Where children are, are are accessories to whatever the adult chooses to live his life or her life by, it never works like that. Although that's what we are trying to do more and more now. And again, this is I think where the romantics fail is because they take only certain aspects of what they think are the best. The, one of the things that comes out of the romantics is this idea of the noble savage, right? The idea that the uh, the Native American living off the land was the uh, this idyllic existence. Okay, now let's talk about the Aztecs, how they killed 80,000 people over the course of a century, cutting their, bo- their beating hearts out of their still mm-hmm. living chests yeah. in, uh, while they were doing it. The Illinois Iroquois would skin people alive starting at the fingers. I mean, they fought just as many wars. And the Romantics had to face this in the French Revolution because the French Revolution was a big, uh, you know, burst of their bubble mm-hmm. when they saw that the people uh, rose up and revolted against the power structures that be. And it turned into a big bloody mess and they just got a tyrant in response to it in Napoleon Bonaparte. And that mm-hmm. really shook their their ideology because what they thought should have happened was a state of of exalted humanity and it turns out when you let the uh the regulars run the show it gets bloody and it gets ugly yeah that's true and so what do you guys think is happening today it seems like there is a um maybe an idyllic view of the romantics again right um, we see that all over social media, the manicured Instagram po- uh, posts that we see. Um, uh, Jacob even mentioned um, there's this return to just living on a farm and uh, growing your own vegetables and living simply again. But again, the foundation for wanting to do that is flawed. They they have this longing for I'm just gonna say shalom right it's peace really it's peace with God, but when you don't acknowledge God, then there are issues because ultimately, if if God is not this transcendent uh, um, again the kind of God that we uh, the, the proper God in our definition which turns out to be the God of the Bible if in your mind, he doesn't exist, then you become God. Yeah, I think um, it comes down to what kind of motivations lead us to those kind of actions. Um, I always say that it was in the garden at the where, where there was no sin, that sin was first committed. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so uh, there, there could be good motivations for people to isolate themselves from the society for some time and then go to a farmhouse and create a community if that's with good motivation. But uh, if they're thinking that they could be there and somehow preserve themselves from uh, any kind of harm that the society can bring, I think that will be a wrong motivation to think. I mean, one, and that's exactly what we were talking about, that we have to recognize that in our nature, we are corrupt without God. Uh, we are not blank slate, corrupted by the society. Rather, we are sinful and we have the tendency to corrupt society and we have tendency to actually influence each other in negative ways. So what we need is, um, and, and Lenny, you were talking about, you know, when we come to that basic form, we tend to sacrifice the other, mm. right? And unless and until we come to the, the ultimate sacrifice of Christ and recognize that he is the one who brings the right order, right identity, right meaning to our life, you know, we'll keep on sacrificing each other yeah. and have that longing to go back to that very state of basic. Uh, whereas when we depend on Christ, he brings that meaning and order to our life and helps us to master the world and have dominion over it, right? right. right? Not dominate over it, but dominion over it Responsible as rulers, over yes, right. over whom there's a king. And that's the beauty of our faith, the Christian faith or the Christian worldview. It, it starts with the right foundation where... God is God, and he is in control, and he is a loving God. He's also a holy God, and he created everything good. But man messed it up. We call that sin. And uh, from there, from there we, uh, we just inherited the sin, and sin just is just part of who we are until, uh, until God rescues us. That's the only solution. And until and unless God rescues us, we are really just stuck in our ways. And we've seen that with the romantics, the poets. And um, what, what I do appreciate about uh, how Carl Truman points this out is, and I'm not sure he even explicitly says this, but you can tell that there is that longing uh, from the poets yeah. uh, because they want something better in fact, they just don't know that it's in Jesus that they find uh, life abundant. Hmm. Not just life, but the abundant life. But any any parting words, real, real quick? I would say that it's interesting how Shelley defined love as love withers under constraint, but its very essence is liberty, meaning liberty for sexual freedom. And that's the opposite of what Christ would define love as. No greater love is this than a man gives himself up for his friends. And so it shows that the poets were just backwards. Yeah. Then, All right. You, you, I can't add anything to that. Yes. Okay. So Lenny, <laughs> you have the last word. Well, you've been listening to the Apologetics.com radio show where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. Our hope is that you've learned some aspect about the Christian worldview that strengthens your faith and make you want to learn more. So special thanks to my panel this evening, Jacob and Lenny. And to our uh, valiant, brave uh, engineer back there, makes everything work. Special thank you to our listeners, to you. Until next time, good night. Good night.